Hi, I'm Grace, and I live in the greater Austin area. Um, I'm in the process of uh, helping my family members with starting their family as a gestational carrier. And we've had one failed transfer so far, and so we're regrouping and trying again. And since then, um, the overturn of Roe v. Wade happened, and it has absolutely added a deeper level of complexity to this process. There's a lot more concern about my safety, um, and it's something that we've had to discuss as a family. I'm Anne from Manchester, New Hampshire. I did IVF about three years ago in this state, um, and now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, um, actually, the clinics have been reaching out to patients to ask if you want to discard embryos, you, you need to decide now just to be safe um, in case that right is taken away from us. So everyone is a little bit more nervous going into these treatments, um, and, and we don't really know what to expect. About 2% of infants born in the U.S. each year are conceived with assisted reproductive technology. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control. And that includes IVF, or in vitro fertilization. It's where an egg is frozen and fertilized outside the body. Then that embryo is implanted in the uterus. But now the future of IVF and other reproductive technologies seems uncertain. Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, state legislatures across the country have implemented abortion bans. Advocates worry some of these state laws will affect the embryos needed for IVF, especially if those states define life as beginning at fertilization. And the issue has come up recently. U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth has announced a bill aimed at protecting IVF and other assisted reproductive technologies. And last month, a ProPublica investigation published audio from a meeting between Tennessee lawmakers and an anti-abortion rights group. Stephen Billy is the vice president of state affairs for Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. And this is what he said to Tennessee lawmakers about how he thinks a future debate could shape up over fertility treatments and contraception. And maybe your caucus gets to a point next year, two years from now, three years from now, where you do want to talk about IVF and how to regulate it in a more ethical way or deal with some of the contraceptive issues. Um, But I don't think that that's the conversation that you need to have now. I would not recommend having it now in the context of your current political law. Earlier this week, I spoke with Katie Glenn, a state policy director for Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, and I asked her about that tape from ProPublica and whether groups like hers would push for legislation restricting IVF in the future. Here's what she told me. I have not heard it be a mainstream position within the Republican Party or within the pro-life movement. Uh, I think certainly many people have concerns around um, ethical um, like, you know, doing IVF ethically, like it is very unregulated area. And so whether that's for the biological parents or whoever, I think there are a lot of people with concerns about that. That was Katie Glenn, a state policy director for Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Now, it's important to say no states have directly targeted IVF yet, but could they? We'll discuss that and so much more after the break. I'm NPR Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, offering online access to licensed therapists. Therapist Joy Berkheimer shares how BetterHelp uses their intake questionnaire to help clients find a therapist that makes them feel comfortable. Finding the therapist that's the right fit for you is like dating. (laughs) 
Uh, you are literally over here swiping and swiping, right? Um, no, this therapist might be good for me. No, they will not relate to me whatsoever. They're not going to understand me. What's really nice about BetterHelp is how they have updated the way that you can search for a therapist that fits you. So now it is so specific around hey, what's their gender? What's their cultural background? People in our country and other countries might feel marginalized for different reasons. And BetterHelp is really good at making sure that you can put your preferences in and set yourself up for having the healthiest space to be honest and flow through your processing. To learn more and get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Let's jump back into the conversation. Joining us is Glenn Cohen. He's a health law and bioethics expert and deputy dean of Harvard Law School. Glenn, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Catherine Crashel. She's a clinical lecturer in law for the Reproductive Justice Clinic at Yale Law School. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Amy Avazadeh. She's a fertility doctor based in California. Dr. Avazadeh, welcome to the program. I'm so happy to be here. From a legal standpoint, why have state abortion bans prompted these concerns about fertility treatments? It's a great question. So I think the main reason is if we go back to the Dobbs opinion itself, that's the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, there's language there that says what's special about abortion, and here I'm going to quote it, is it's because it destroys what Roe termed potential life and what the law challenge in this case calls an unborn human being. And basically saying, what the court is saying is its prior decisions don't apply in that situation. Well, there's many people who think that you could describe an embryo that way, and we see uh, states doing so with their personhood laws. So all of a sudden, the Dobbs decision has made clear that if a state wants to restrict embryo destruction, there's no constitutional problem from doing so. And Katie, have any states carved out specific exceptions so far to protect IVF that you're aware of? Um, Yeah, there are a couple of states, I believe, um, West Virginia has an explicit exemption. Um, There was actually some debate in Indiana when it put its abortion restriction in place, um, and it includes an exemption for IVF. Um, So states have been, in some instances, actually thoughtful to exclude IVF from their abortion restrictions, even when at the same time referencing life beginning at conception. What I think that this, their exceptions and the way that they have defined abortion um, to not include destroying embryos, it says a lot to really think about what these laws are really doing and what their goal, um, what their goals are. Because if it, if the abortion restrictions talk about life at fertilization, but then restrict abortion only when an embryo is or a fetus is within a pregnant person's body. Uh, these statutes, you know, some of they really operate to control bodies rather than, um, you know, further their stated goal of protecting life from conception. I think it's important to set the scene a little bit medically about what is involved in some of these treatments. And we're talking about a range of them, but especially IVF, in vitro fertilization. Dr. Avazadeh, you practice in California. Can you just kind of walk us through what are the steps a patient goes through when considering IVF? Absolutely. So what she's going through is she's thinking about how many children she wants, um, how many IVF cycles she potentially might need to to get there. 
Some people consider freezing eggs if they have ethical issues surrounding having unused embryos. And then she also has a choice as to whether she will test embryos for genetic issues or not. And so living in California, I feel very fortunate that I have not had to worry about some of the things that my friends in other states have had to worry about. And I've had patients call me from all over the country, ask me if they can move their embryos to California. Yeah. What are some of your colleagues worried about and how might some of these abortion restrictions affect IVF or other fertility treatments? I think what they're worried about from the very beginning is care for women who are, let's say, experiencing miscarriages or they have an abnormal pregnancy growing. So I think this will drive up the use of genetic testing um, where people may have originally thought that they were going to try naturally, for example, to start their family. Some people might now immediately go to genetic testing of embryos as a way to start and grow their family. The other thing they're concerned about is um, legislation that will affect a, a, a person's choice as to what they do with discarded embryos and limit a doctor's ability to discard them. And then I also think just limiting the practice of ART in the state that they live in is something that's really scary for a lot of my, my colleagues. And define ART just so that we know what that acronym means. Absolutely. So using assisted reproductive technology, doing IVF, freezing eggs, embryos, um, third-party reproduction, egg donation, embryo donation, all aspects related to seeing a fertility doctor to grow your family. A 2018 Pew Research survey found that at least a third of U.S. adults either have used fertility treatments themselves or know someone who has. What are some of the reasons, uh, Dr. Avazadeh, that your patients come to you seeking these treatments? I think one of the... um, One of the biggest reasons is age. So age-related infertility is on the rise. More people than ever are starting their family at an age where their egg quality is not good. So that's age over 35. So that's one of the biggest reasons that we're seeing is as a society, we're waiting longer to start and grow our family. So that's the number one reason. Now, I want to hear from Lauren, a listener who lives in Louisiana, but went through fertility treatment in California. My husband and I started the IVF process in New Orleans in 2019. After multiple tests, the doctor concluded the only way for us to conceive was through a microtessy. It did not work. We decided a second opinion was necessary, and we used a clinic in San Francisco. PFC gave us our beautiful and healthy son, Wesley, and we have two additional embryos. We want to try again in January 2023, and I've been following the legality of Roe v. Wade. I feel so fortunate that we could afford to go to California for treatment and that our embryos are still there. Still, I am concerned about selective reduction since we live in Louisiana. Now, Glenn, with a caveat that I know you can't advise Lauren specifically, but what can you tell us about the legal status of abortion in Louisiana? And can you give us any insight into what that might mean for a patient uh, like Lauren who is accessing care in other states? So Louisiana is an interesting test case but because actually it's one of the only states, I believe, that has a explicit prohibition on destroying embryos that go back to 1986. So this is before the Dobbs decision. There's a statute that says a viable in vitro fertilized human ovum is a juridical person, which shall not be intentionally destroyed by any natural or other juridical person, and it goes on from there. So Louisiana is a place where actually embryo destruction is the most dicey. So I would often tell patients if they were in Louisiana, it might not be the state to think about. 
And this might be a roadmap for other states, because if we look internationally and look uh, beyond the United States, there are countries that limit the number of embryos you can fertilize to those you're going to implant to prohibit such destruction. So I do think it's a serious question. Now, when we're talking about abortion bans, take another state that has an abortion ban rather than speaking specifically to embryo destruction. Here, I think the biggest concern is if you do implant many embryos, multiple embryos, which is something people do for cost reasons, you have uh, a problem going forward. Are you going to be able to engage in selective reduction to reduce the number of embryos, or is that going to be considered an abortion? So these are the things that I think people are going to have to think about and their physicians are going to have to think about as we plan for this new post-OBS world. Dr. Avazadeh, how do you advise your patients about that question of how many embryos to implant? Um, And what kinds of questions do you get, either medical or maybe ethical questions too? Absolutely. And I think that most patients, especially in the Bay Area, I would say close to 90% of my patients are genetically screening their embryos. And this allows us to select the single best embryo for transfer. So it's very rare for us to transfer more than one embryo at a time. And this issue of selective reduction could still come up if, let's say, one embryo splits into three, for example. But I still feel like if an embryo splits into two, a woman should still be given the choice to reduce the pregnancy down to one if she does not want to have twins, for example. But because of how good IVF is now and how high the rates of success are, we are able to transfer one embryo and give a patient the highest chance of pregnancy, similar to what we were doing, let's say 10 years ago, transferring two embryos without genetic testing. I'm Sarah McCammon, and you're listening to 1A. Dr. Avazadeh, do you do you ever um, have patients who are concerned about the, the prospect of having to uh, engage in selective reduction, maybe aren't comfortable with that or are, are wanting to avoid that? I mean, how, how do those conversations sound in your office? Absolutely. When you're talking to a patient about getting pregnant, the last thing you want to do is say, and I want to talk to you about, you know, removing a pregnancy. And that's not an easy conversation to hear. Those kinds of conversations come up more, not when we're talking about ART and doing IVF, more when patients are using ovulation induction. So we're giving them fertility drugs to help them ovulate more than one egg. And so when potentially someone's ovulating three or four eggs, let's say she's 40 years old, and you have to have that conversation, you know, there might be a chance for more than twins. We're talking about a 3% chance, but it's still a very important discussion to have. In California, of course, we are so lucky that we have access to great university centers and great specialists who are able to safely do these procedures. But obviously in other states, my concerns are that those patients will not have that type of access to care. And this is going to increase maternal, maternal mortality and morbidity. Right. What are some of the medical concerns about multiple pregnancies that might prompt you to advise um, selective reduction? Um, preterm labor and preterm delivery. And that those are the leading cause of developmental abnormalities in children because a baby's brain is too small to, um, to grow outside the womb. And uh, we can't ventilate these little tiny babies in the same way that they need to receive oxygen inside the womb. So that's one of the biggest concerns. And then obviously for the mom, postpartum hemorrhage and preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is an extremely high-risk pregnancy complication that can cause maternal mortality. And so those are the biggest risks and health concerns related to a um, multifetal pregnancy. 
So, Glenn, a moment ago, we heard from Lauren in Louisiana, uh, a Republican lawmaker in that state proposed a bill earlier this year that would have defined personhood as beginning at fertilization. Now, this was an anti-abortion law, um, but it would have given embryos a legal status. Georgia's six-week abortion ban, which is currently in the midst of court challenges, also has a fetal person personhood provision. How does that concept affect uh, both fertility treatments and possibly contraception? It's a great question. So we've seen these personhood uh, bills before the Dobbs decision, the decision that overruled Roe, right? So for example, in Mississippi in 2011, there was a ballot initiative or a referendum, I can't remember which, to basically declare a personhood to begin at the moment of fertilization or the moment of conception. This has been a strategy, one of several strategies to get uh, Roe v. Wade overruled, and it was kind of one of the ones that was pursued. Now, in some ways, the abortion restriction movement is a little bit like the dog that's caught the bus. They've got the success that they were looking for, and now the question is, what should the next frontier be? And there is serious interest in kind of, uh, you know, as you heard from that uh, quote from the, the, the lawmaker, the leaked audio, there's serious interest in going after IVF. And the reason, if you think about it, is if you believe fetuses are persons, you have to ask yourself, well, when does personhood begin? And one answer that's given by many, including lawmakers, is that personhood begins at the moment of fertilization. If that's true, everything you believe about the destruction of a fetus, you also believe about the destruction of a human embryo. And in some ways, in vitro fertilization is an easier thing to control and to regulate because it doesn't involve regulating the bodies of pregnant persons, their gestation, the same way that abortion does. So in some ways, it makes perfect sense this should be the next frontier for a movement if it's committed to the goal of protecting the lives of uh, persons that they believe are fertilized individuals. We're discussing the future of fertility treatments. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Now let's go back to our inbox. Hi, I am calling from Boston. I did IVF before Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, but we do have many embryos in storage right now. And there are a lot of concerns about what will happen to them. Our fertility clinic has assured everyone that if anything were to happen with the law in Massachusetts, they would ship embryos to other states. But if something happens on the federal level, um, we can imagine not having full control over our embryos, and it's very worrisome. This question of interstate embryo transfer is one that's come up a couple times in the program. And, and Katie, I want to put that to you a slightly different way. You know, when the Dobbs decision came out overturning Roe, some people with means considered moving across state lines. But if you have embryos frozen in one state, how easy is it, first of all, just logistically to move them to another state? And what are some of the legal implications? So I will, I will caveat this by saying that I am not an embryologist or expert in transferring embryos, but it's my understanding um, that upon a request, and I imagine for a fee because it's um, expensive to transfer things so carefully cryopreserved, uh, it is possible for patients at fertility clinics um, to request that their embryos be shipped to another state. Now, as far as the legal status of shipping embryos across state lines goes, you know, it's another one of those places where it's a bit of an open question um, as to how courts would address that if a state tried to enforce its restriction on destructing embryos across state lines. That is, if a state 
put a regulation in place that said you can't destroy embryos. And someone said, I want to move my embryos to another state and destroy them. Um, And that state tried to enforce their restriction against that person, despite the fact that the destruction happened in another state. Now, for anybody that's been following the abortion landscape post-Dobbs and heard legal experts conjecture about what the legal landscape will look like moving forward, those issues sound pretty familiar when we talk about people traveling across straight lines in order to access abortion. Doctor, one thing, oh, go ahead, sorry. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that one thing that some people hang their hat on uh, when we're talking about the abortion context is that Justice Kavanaugh did mention um, support of the idea of a right to travel um, in the Dobbs decision. So there are some people who think in the context of abortion that people traveling across state lines to access abortion, that even the conservative Supreme Court might sway some of the justices that overturned Roe v. Wade to say that they support a right to travel and that so they would not, um, that they would overrule uh, action by a state that tried to enforce their abortion laws across state lines. However, if we're talking about shipping embryos, I'm not sure that tracks um, because we're talking about shipping embryos. We're not talking about people traveling. So um, it's a complex issue uh, that there are many legal scholars, you know, talking about things like the Dormant Commerce Clause um, and how states would um, work to uh, resolve these issues uh, should states seek to enforce their laws outside of the barriers or the borders of their own state. Dr. Avazadeh, I'm just curious on the ground, at least in your experience, what do you see? How often are people either coming to you from out of state or maybe moving out of state and having to think about these questions? Very often, I would say maybe 5% of my patient population was traveling. And I would say maybe right now it's about 20%. Um, People are traveling here from other states for egg freezing, um, embryo freezing. They're starting their families in California, knowing that they will happily travel here so that they don't have to have these concerns that other people are having to deal with and worry about. Now, I do want to point out some Republicans have come out in support of protecting IVF. Here's former Vice President Mike Pence on CBS's Face the Nation in November. I fully support uh, fertility treatments, and I think they deserve the protection of the law. They gave us great uh, comfort uh, in those long and challenging years uh, that we struggled with infertility in our marriage. And that was former Vice President Mike Pence speaking on CBS last month. You know, Glenn, we've touched on the regulation of IVF, uh, both in the U.S. and other countries. But can you just kind of give us a a big picture? How is it currently regulated and what might additional regulations look like? So one of the things that's interesting about the United States is that we have relatively less regulation of in vitro fertilization or reproductive technologies than compared to Canada or the U.K., for example. And what regulation we do have is largely at the state level rather than the federal level. The main federal statute on this is just a reporting requirement for clinics to report their uh, their outcomes. When it comes to individual states, we have uh, tort law about errors and the like. We also have some licensing laws about who can be a reproductive endocrinologist and the like. And then we also have a series of laws, either statutory or case law, about parenthood. So questions about in a surrogate, is the surrogate the parent or is the person who gives the gametes, for example? When you uh, have embryos that are frozen and people get divorced, who gets to decide which of the two parties gets the embryos and the like? 
that's typically at the level of state law. So one of the things that's interesting about us, the senator's kind of proposal, it would be a big change to have a bill that's this forthright at the federal level. Dr. Avazadeh, why do people, you know, we've been talking about uh, embryo implantation and the decisions around uh, around that. You said some people have their embryos tested, wanting to make sure essentially that they have uh, a healthy embryo as much as possible. But why do people sometimes have more than one implanted in the uterus? Um, a lot of times, <clears throat> excuse me, if they choose not to do genetic testing, or if, let's say, the quality of the embryo is low, even if an embryo is screened as normal, the implantation rate is lower if the quality of the embryo is lower, and then the doctor might choose to transfer more than one for that patient. Or if they have implantation issues, if they've done a number of transfers and they're still not able to have an embryo implant, sometimes with shared decision-making, the doctor and the patient choose to transfer more than one embryo. So those are the different reasons why sometimes I transfer more than one embryo. We've heard from some of our listeners who've had experiences along these lines. Betsy tweeted us, uh, this is a real issue. She was speaking of selective reduction. I had triplets 14 years ago. She says, I was offered selective reduction. We didn't do it, but that was our choice. Now, she doesn't specify if she had IVF or, or um, got pregnant a different way. But but as you said, Dr. Avazadeh, this is a decision that some patients face in their fertility treatment process. Vera tweets, I've had infertility for almost 12 years with multiple losses. IVF is my last chance to have a baby. We are testing embryos. I don't want to go through another ectopic pregnancy or miscarriage. This has been the most difficult and painful struggle of my life. And, you know, we haven't talked a lot about that, Dr. Avazadeh, but we're we're talking medically and clinically here. But this is a very emotional uh, moment for a lot of these patients, isn't it? It is. The emotional impact of IVF, I think, is the greatest risk of going through this treatment. I mean, patients sometimes say to me, like, what should I worry about? And they're thinking about things like cancer. And I actually say, no, it's actually PTSD, depression, anxiety. And so, you know, working with now more than ever, a mental health care provider as you're going through treatment, I think is essential, an essential part of being an IVF patient nowadays. You know, Katie, people sometimes end up with more embryos than they want to use. We talked about making the decision about how many to implant. But what are some of the options for people who have extras? Maybe they're done. Maybe their families are done and they have more embryos frozen away. What can they do with them? Um, sure. You know, patients have a number of, of options. Um, they can choose to discard them um, in every state except for Louisiana. Um, they can choose to discard them. They can donate them um, for science. There is an in, sort of increasing um, market or demand for transferring embryos to other people who want to use them to get pregnant. And some people um, just continuing to pay their cryopreservation fees and keep them frozen um, indefinitely. But if, if I can go back to, you know, sort of the the anxiety level and sort of the emotional toll of fertility care, I think one of the, th- and so sort of tying it to what you heard from Mike Pence say, um, you note that even the conservative folks who talk about per, uh, supporting IVF, they talk about fertility care. They don't. They they may still say that they want access to IVF, but they're all for not destroying embryos. And you'll note that you know Mike Pence mentioned that he worked on fertility care in his family in his marriage. And so one of the other things that the Duckworth bill does is that it says that you can't deny. Um, any indi- you can't uh, keep any, any, no state can keep an individual from accessing reproductive technology. And so LGBTQ people um, are the, another patient population that, especially in the past um, decade or so, has really come to rely upon ART in order to build our families. 
And so that's another thing that I think is important to highlight about Senator Duckworth's bill is that it um, it could also protect discriminatory laws that states could try to enact or just discriminatory practices um, that could exclude people from accessing fertility care. Uh, so I think that, you know, and the emotional toll that can follow from experiencing that discrimination and a desire to exercise something as fundamental as your right to decide how and when to become a parent um, is important and something that I'm glad to see um, Senator Duckworth is concerned about at the national level. I don't want to get overly hypothetical here, Glenn, but I am curious as we hear about some Republican support for, uh, at least in theory, for IVF and for fertility treatments, and then we hear Katie talking about some of the potential limitations of that support. Um, what are some of the ways you could see this debate playing out? Uh, will we see will we see uh, debates in state legislatures over various versions of efforts to regulate this? Great question. So the thing I'm most worried about, I think, would be the inadvertent um, kind of uh, impingement on the right to do in vitro fertilization. So some of these bills that have language about personhood and when personhood begins – Thus far, uh, they've avoided IVF, but it's very easy to see how you might accidentally write something that raises questions about embryo destruction. So that's one thing I'm worried about. The other is that there maybe there will form a new political constituency in some states that wants to limit in vitro fertilization. I think the target will mostly be the embryo destruction, that the, the, the bill will say like Louisiana's does, that there will be no embryo destruction in this state. And that would raise all the questions you've been asking, the great questions about transferring embryos to another state for destruction, about whether there's a state constitutional challenge you might bring. But I do think the Dobbs decision and the way it's been written makes it seem that if a state wanted to say you cannot destroy the embryos you fertilize or you can only fertilize as many embryos as you're going to implant in this cycle, you'd be hard-pressed to say that the federal constitution prohibits that after Dobbs. Dr. Avazade, practically speaking, what would that mean if a state passed a law, probably not California where you practice, but one of your colleague states perhaps, passed a law banning the, destru the destruction of embryos explicitly? Could you still do fertility treatments like IVF at all? You could. And the way you do it <clears throat> is you limit the number of embryos that you actually intentionally create. And you can do that by literally fertilizing one egg at a time. So it is possible. And I have families that, you know, for their own you know, they have their own religious beliefs and I will always honor them. And they say to me, I don't want to have any leftover embryos. So there is a way to do IVF without having unused embryos by literally fertilizing one egg at a time. So that could be a way that, you know, doctors in those states could practice fertility medicine. It would drive the cost up tremendously, obviously, because every time you thought an egg to create another embryo, you're talking about all the costs that are involved in that. It's much more efficient to fertilize all eggs at once. Thank you so much to all three of our guests, Glenn Cohen, health law and bioethics expert and the deputy dean at Harvard Law School, Catherine Crashel, a clinical lecturer in law for the Reproductive Justice Clinic at Yale Law School, and Dr. Amy Avazade, a fertility doctor based in California. Thanks to all of you for being on the show. Today's producer was Jorgelina Manorea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.